teaching series. Oh, by the way, just quick note, this is not weed on my shirt. I thought I'd get that out of the way because I've had about five people ask me, what are you doing wearing a marijuana shirt, bro? Kelly's like, are we starting a dispensary? They're popping up all over town. So it, it, these are, these are, this is palm. See, today's generation can't tell the difference between weed and palm because they've had too much weed. So this is not marijuana. These are palm trees. And thanks to you, I may not wear this shirt to church again. So uh, let's get that right out of the way. It's good to be with you. It's not a weed shirt. Um, yeah, we're continuing in Galatians, uh, which I've just been loving so far. And uh, it's amazing how you read these books in the Bible over and over over the years. And, you know, it, and they have an impact on you, and you learn things, and you pick up on things as you're reading and doing your own devotions and study. But when you actually just really pause to, to study a book and really look at it, you know, kind of with a microscope, it's amazing the difference. And uh, that's, that's why I've been enjoying it. I haven't studied it like this before, so. but we're going to be continuing in that series called No Other Gospel. <clears throat> Last Sunday, we learned that the, the churches throughout Galatia, it's a Roman province called Galatia, throughout, churches throughout that region were basically beginning to turn to a different distorted version of the gospel that was being spread by a group of false teachers called the Judaizers. Kind of a funny word, huh, Judaizer? Uh, and what they were saying essentially is that Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, when Gentile people would come to Christ in a saving way, believing in Jesus wasn't enough. They had to basically become Jewish. So if you were a male, you had to be circumcised and, hey, lucky gals, right? They don't have to do that. But you had to do that, and then you had to follow all the Mosaic laws. You had to basically do all the things that pious Jews would do. And so it was kind of this Christ or faith plus works uh, sort of false gospel these guys were preaching. And, of course, they were spreading it to all the churches throughout Galatia. And um, it really contradicted the message that the Apostle Paul preached to these very same people just 18 months earlier when he actually went through this region and planted all these churches. Um, he preached the true gospel, which is about grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. It's not based on any of our efforts or deeds or goodness or any of that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it so clearly. So they were preaching a false gospel that contradicted the true gospel that Paul actually planted the churches with. The trouble is, is that these churches were starting to believe the Judaizers. And um, Paul says that those who preach a gospel that says that you have to believe in Jesus and then do a bunch of stuff, he literally called those who preach that accursed, anathema. That's, that means damned. That means eternally damned. And uh, this is exactly what he said in the, in the section that we looked at last week. Now, one of the primary objectives of the, these Judaizers, or false teachers, these guys who were stirring up you know, so much controversy and confusion in the Galatian churches, one of their real big objectives, primary goal, was really to discredit Paul and to undermine and basically attack and destroy 
his apostolic authority or his authority as an apostle. They knew that they could not successfully undermine his teaching and the gospel he preached of, of God's grace until they undermined his divine authority, Paul's divine authority, and apostolic leadership. I mean, think about it. If you start attacking the teachings first, then people are going to say, well, there's an apostle who taught us these things. And so there's an, a built-in defense right there. But so what they were doing is saying, well, that Paul guy's basically a loser. He's gotten his gospel from other men, and it's a false gospel. It's always been about works and faith. And so they basically set out to, to really attack him and undermine him and discredit him. Then they could pervert and change the teaching. So it's a, this is a strategy of Satan. This is what he does. And, uh, and in this case, Satan is masquerading as men who claim to be really apostles, the true apostles or true, true teachers in the church. And you see this today in a variety of ways. So in order to accomplish that end of discrediting Paul, they spread the, uh, the idea that Paul was not actually a legitimate apostle, but that he was actually self-appointed and that his motivation behind all of this was just to build up his reputation and build up a personal following of a whole bunch of people. So that's one of the things that they were saying about him to the churches that he planted. They accused him of putting aside the mosaic laws and ceremonies and the standards and the practices, all the things that belong to Judaism. They accused him of putting all those things aside to basically make this gospel more appealing to Gentiles by removing all of its Jewish associations, right? Well, as a Gentile, you don't have to do all the things that the Jews were doing, so go ahead and believe in Jesus. That's what they were saying that he was saying, these kinds of lies and deception. But the strategy, sadly, it worked because these accusations had a, a devastating effect on, on many of these Christians throughout Galatia. They were starting to believe the Judaizers and starting to turn away from the true gospel, which is entirely about grace. And, of course, they were questioning and doubting and rejecting Paul now. In the next section, Paul defends himself against all of these accusations and allegations, all of that coming from the Judaizers. He basically, in this text, he says seven things about himself. He's basically giving some autobiography. When you write something about yourself, it's an autobiography. When somebody else does it about you, it's biography. And so he, he's basically giving autobiography in the next text. In fact, I've entitled the sermon that, and this is only part one because he continues doing it in the beginning of chapter two. That's what we'll be looking at today, Paul's autobiography part one. I think it's good that we pray before we get to work. Lord, uh, just uh, as Cameron said earlier, just open our, our eyes and ears and hearts, minds to receive the truth and help us to understand the, the, the allegations and accusations that were made against Paul and to see the warnings there and to accept Paul's defense because really the validity of Scripture hangs on this. If Paul is, as they have said, then he's just lying through his teeth in Scripture here. And so really what the Judaizers are doing is they're attacking Paul, but they're attacking the very Word of God. They're attacking the true gospel. And uh, it could be that we have some here today that, that think that true salvation is 
partly faith and partly works, which Paul calls accursed. And so just help us to, to see your word in a way that maybe we haven't before. Help us to be uh, those who do trust in you and believe the true gospel to uh, just to be built up and sanctified today. And we pray most of all that you are glorified through this time. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We need to begin with this first autobiographical statement. When I give these statements, they're kind of a summary of the text that I'll read after that. The first thing that Paul tells the Galatians, and really the Judaizers if they're reading, and I'm sure they are, along with the rest of these churches, because they were, they were integrated, he basically says, I am not a people pleaser. I am not a people pleaser. Okay, and he says this in verse 10 in his own way. Listen to what he says here. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, this is an interesting statement. It kind of comes out of nowhere. You know, you, you, it kind of the, the, the thought process kind of ends at verse 9, and then all of a sudden you've got this, this 357 Magnum statement that's kind of bizarre. It doesn't really seem to fit, but let me help you understand. The accusations against Paul from the Judaizers involved the lie that he was purposely watering down the truth and preaching grace in an effort to make Judaism seem easier and more attractive to Gentiles, non-Jews. Uh, basically, what the Judaizers were saying is that you're nothing more than a people pleaser and you're softening the message and the word just to try to make Jesus more attractive to non-Jews. This is what they were saying about him to these churches. Of course, they would follow that with these Christians that they were trying to influence with. The true way is that, yes, you believe in Jesus, and then you get circumcised, and then you obey the law and do all these other things. Uh, they were basically calling Paul to these Christians throughout Galatia. They were calling him an ear-tickling people-pleaser who doesn't actually care about true religion because he taught you false religion, but we Judaizers are teaching you true religion. And, and Paul basically responds here by saying kind of a paraphrase, if, if I am a people pleaser, as you say, who is seeking the approval of men, why would I call those who preach a man-centered, merit-driven gospel accursed? This is his point. I mean, he just got done pronouncing a curse on those who like to take the gospel and make it, you know, more man-friendly. And you actually do that by saying it's about works because that's in our Adamic nature. We want to earn our way. It's in the core of who we are. So when we preach a gospel that says believe and do work, that is appealing to sinners. And Paul is saying, I just called, called those who, who say those things and who teach those things accursed. So who am I trying to please here? Man like you or God? That's his point. If he were a people pleaser like they said he was, he would be preaching their gospel, a gospel of, of, of faith and, and works, a, a combination, a concoction of grace plus effort. He would be doing what the Judaizers were doing if he were a people pleaser because nothing pleases fallen sinners more than telling them, hey, you got a shot at this. Just work really hard and you can get yourself into heaven. Now, for us Christians, that's repulsive. 
right? Think about it. You trying to earn your way, does that sound like fun? I've tried that. That doesn't work. But that's because many of us are mature Christians. But to the Christian who's young, 18 months of Christian as these people are, it's appealing to say, well, man, I can just earn God's favor. I can get things from Him. I can get into heaven if I just be a good person and do all these great things. They're accusing Paul of being a people pleaser. That's a people pleasing message. He's saying those people who do that are accursed. <laughs> Who's the people pleaser here? And he would literally, if he were a people pleaser like the Judaizers, he would be out there spreading their message, salvation by faith plus works. And guess what? People would be super, super happy with Paul if he did that because they love to try to earn their way into heaven. They love it. It's part of that nature. Uh, MacArthur says, man's sinful pride is offended by the idea that only God's mercy and grace can save him from sin, and he therefore insists on having a part in his own salvation. That, that is an accurate statement. Nothing offends sinners more than telling them they can't earn their way into heaven, right? I mean, it would, it would offend me if somebody told me you can't earn your way to a paycheck, Right? I work hard to get paid. You work hard to get paid. But then we start talking about religion, and you start saying things like, you, Jim, you can't earn your way. It's all of grace. Well, how dare you tell me that? I'm a good person. I do all these great things. People get offended by that. And that's what MacArthur is saying. And Paul adds to it here, if I were a people pleaser like you say, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why is that? Because you cannot be a people pleaser and a servant of Christ simultaneously. You can only be a pleaser of one or the other. If you are a people pleaser, you are not pleasing Christ because that's mean, that means you're doing just about anything you can to please people. And people as sinners want to be pleased in ways that aren't good. Right? They want to, they want to have their egos stroked. They want to have all these things. You know, they want to be told things and, and, and caressed emotionally and all this garbage. And he's basically saying, well, if I was pleasing men, then I wouldn't be a servant of Christ because he knows that you can't be both at the same time. Now, we're not talking about, because you can please Christ by serving men, that's how you do it. But there's a difference in, in seeking to please Christ by serving men. And there's a difference in being a people pleaser. People pleasers can't say no to people on any front, no matter what, no matter how despicable it is, the, the thing that they want. And Paul is just simply saying, man, if, that's, if, if, if I am as you say, then I'm not a servant of Christ because I can't be both. I could be one or the other. And if you read Paul's epistles, you know darn well he was no people pleaser. He was a people ticker offer. That's not even a phrase, but that's coming from somebody who looks like they're wearing a weed shirt. People pleasers cater to people. They say what people want to hear. They do what people want them to do. But a servant of Christ does what is pleasing to Christ. In this context, being a servant of Christ has to do with preaching the message Christ gave to Paul, the gospel, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And, and by the way, if you're preaching a hybrid, goofy inaccurate wrong gospel of faith plus works you're not a servant of christ you are not pleasing christ you are attacking what he did on the cross that condemns an entire religion called roman catholicism because that's what they do week in and week out 
when a person proclaims the gospel that Paul preached, you know, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, when they stick to what the word has prescribed, when they stick to what Paul uh, planted these churches with and preached throughout his letters and that's preached throughout all of scripture, when a person does that, he or she is being a servant of Christ. But when they deviate from the true gospel and preach another gospel, they become a people pleaser. And they're worried about what man will think, so they actually do soften the message or just remove the cross altogether because that's a bloody mess, isn't it? Nobody wants to talk about sin. Nobody wants to talk about repentance. In fact, if you hear a preacher's preaching and they don't mention sin and repentance in their preaching ever, that's a people-pleasing preacher. He's not being true to the Word because the Word commands us to repent and believe. The Word talks about sin, talks about its dangers and how it, how it kills, Romans 6, 23. When a preacher waters down the gospel by leaving out biblical words like sin and repentance, he, he's nothing more than a people pleaser. When he preaches self-help and signs and wonders and prosperity and all that junk, he's nothing more than a people pleaser. He's doing all of those things to make the church and Christ and the gospel more attractive. You're a people pleaser if you try to make the things of God more attractive. They're only attractive to the people of God. The people outside of the fold hate the things of God. And when we take it upon ourselves to make these things more palatable, we are people pleasers. But it doesn't mean we're supposed to be mean with the word. We're not supposed to use it as a bludgeon. But there's a huge difference. As a general rule, if a preacher makes people feel good about themselves when he preaches, he's probably a people pleaser. Okay? Well, what are you saying, Pastor Phil, that every time we come here, you're supposed to beat the snot out of us? No. The Word can do that. I don't have to do it. The Word does it to me all the time. Like I said, it's not about being mean with the Word. You don't want to be mean with the Word. But my goal every Sunday morning is not to make you feel good about yourselves. It's not even to make you feel bad about yourselves. It's to bring you closer to Christ. And sometimes that makes you feel bad because you have crap in your life. Amen? Now, if, you've got, if you've got somebody that's just all about trying to make, every, make everybody happy and make them feel good and up their self-esteem, that, that's not a gospel preacher. Mm-mm. No. Somebody that leaves out the words that the Bible uses in the gospel, sin, repentance, they leave that out. That's, that's not a gospel preacher. That's a people pleaser. Scripture is not designed to make people happy. It's not. It doesn't exist for that. It is designed to make spiritually dead people alive. There's a huge difference. It is designed to make Christians holy. God, God, God didn't send Jesus to make us happy. He sent, us, he sent him to save us and to make us holy unto himself. Huge difference, especially in today's perverted, goofy, silly world and, and American gospel. It's just, it's just garbage. When the word of God is faithfully preached by capable men, it will kill and resurrect. It will destroy 
How many of you felt destroyed under the preaching of God's word? But it also rebuilds. It doesn't leave you destroyed. When the word of God is preached by capable men, when it's faithfully preached, it will cause pain and it will cause healing, won't it? It'll do both. It's the only thing in the whole world that can do both. That's because God's power is in the word. He tears down and he builds up. When the word is faithfully preached by a capable man, that word is going to prune and cut away the dead branches in the people of God so that they can grow and bear fruit. We live in an agricultural community. We know what pruning's like. I tell you, when I prune my rose bushes, they explode with roses. When I don't, they don't explode with roses. But I think that every time I go out there and cut stuff, first of all, I'm always going, dang it, another thorn. I'm always getting cut up. But every time I make a snip, if that rose bush could talk, I bet it'd say, ow, right? Take this. Here's another thorn. But they don't speak, so we don't hear them. What I'm telling you is pruning is painful. It hurts to have things cut away in our lives through the Word and through the Spirit. It's painful. It hurts. Sometimes we're, we're clinging to these things and we don't want to let them go, but we know that God wants them gone. But the point is, is that once something dead has been cut off, something new can grow and blossom and bear fruit. That's a painful process. Sanctification, don't let anyone tell you coming to Jesus, knowing Jesus, is just going to be all strawberries and wine. It's just going to be all joy and fun. It is, a, it is a painful walk at times. It is a painful walk at times. But the Lord is with us, isn't He? And He certainly eases our pain for us, doesn't He? When we remember to turn to Him. But don't, don't let anyone tell you it's an easy thing. And the last thing that Paul is doing is dumbing down the gospel to make it easier for Gentiles. That's his whole point here. I'm not a people pleaser. He's a servant of Christ. How do we know he's a servant of Christ? Because he preached the true gospel, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In fact, Paul was persecuted and eventually murdered for this. Nobody kills men who preach a people-pleasing gospel. They're never persecuted. People love them. Those men make people feel good about themselves all the time. Your ship's on the horizon. Your, your, your bonus is coming. Your blessing is coming. All they do is preach garbage that makes people feel good. But when you preach the true gospel, the whole world will turn its arsenal on you. Maybe you say, well, I'm hardly ever persecuted. Well, maybe you hardly ever preach the true gospel. Because once you start touting that, you're ready. People are like, ch -ch 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 -ch. And don't do it on Facebook, that's dumb. Paul was, was absolutely brutalized for preaching the true gospel. You don't, you don't brutalize people who preach a gospel that makes people feel good about themselves. You brutalize those who makes people feel bad about themselves because they're actually preaching the word. But the intent of the word isn't just to make people feel bad about themselves, it's to kill and resurrect. It's to make them new. See, with us as spiritually dead sinners, we, we've got to be... We've got to be brought to life out of that death, and then we can bear fruit. But that's a, sometimes a painful thing because now we realize we're a sinner and we're having to let go of things. It's just hard. Paul, he was not, he was not widely accepted, and, and that's because of the way that he preached. 
He preached the message of the cross, which is, as he said, foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18. What do people think of the true gospel? They think it's stupid. It's foolishness to them. He also preached Christ crucified, which is what? A stumbling block to Jews and folly or stupidity to Gentiles, 1 Corinthians 1.23, just a few verses later. His preaching did not make people happy nor win him fans. <laughs> it got him 40 lashes minus one five times. It got him beaten with rods three times, just whipped. It got him stoned almost to death in Lystra, which is in Galatia. When he went and planted these churches the during his first tour, he almost got killed in Galatia. Him preaching the true gospel didn't get him fans and, and friendly people. It got him imprisoned. And according to the early church historian Eusebius, it got Paul beheaded by the Romans. Who's the people pleaser? Paul? The man who was killed by people for preaching the gospel? Or the Judaizers who were saying, hey, just add a little of this, you'll be good to go. I know it already caters to your sinful nature. Woohoo! This is what he's saying. You know what's happening here is the Judaizers are blaming Paul for their own sin. Isn't that fun when people blame you for their sin? They're the people pleasers preaching a soft gospel, and they're blaming Paul for their sin. Now let's move to his second autobiographical statement. The second thing he says is the gospel I preach came from God, not from man. I didn't get it from some guys. I got it from God. He says this in verses 11 and 12. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that, that uh, was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the accusations against Paul also in, involved the lie that he was merely parroting a false message he had heard from other men. According to the Judaizers, the gospel of grace Paul preached was nothing more than the result of man's wishful thinking because it removed the Gentiles' responsibility to assimilate and obey the Mosaic law. And Paul defends himself by telling the Galatian brothers that the, the message he preached, it's not man's gospel... <laughs> It's not man's gospel because I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it by any man. And he says, it came to me through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Just think about that. How did the gospel come to us? It came to us through faithful men and women who preached it, didn't it? I would like to say that it came directly from the Lord through those men and women, but for the most part, there was a human instrument involved. They shared it, we heard it, the Spirit changed our minds and hearts, and we believed it and started following Jesus. That's what happened. It's a miracle. But Paul tells us that he received it directly as a revelation, directly from Jesus himself. In other words, Paul did not get his gospel through some faithful evangelist or preacher. He got it directly from Jesus. And by the way, that is requisite to becoming an apostle. You had to not only know Jesus physically, face to face, you had to meet him, you had to know him like the original guys did, 
but you also had to get the gospel directly from him to be an apostle. So those who call themselves apostles today, first of all, I doubt they've ever met Jesus face to face because I don't think they would survive that. Paul went blind. But secondly, they got the gospel from Jesus directly and from no other person? No, that hasn't happened since this. So what does that tell us about apostles today? They're not apostles. Uh, the, even the man, think of the original 12, they got the gospel from Jesus. We know that Judas Iscariot heard it over and over and over, but he didn't get it. But he heard it, and, and, and it came from Jesus. The, the man who replaced him later on, Matthias, he received the gospel directly from Jesus. He actually toured with them. Ever since, the, um, since Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, Matthias was there the whole time, almost the entire three years. He heard the Lord preach the gospel over and over and over. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. According to Paul's testimony in verse 12, he was a direct recipient of the gospel, just like the other apostles, and this undergirded his apostolic authority. The Judaizers were, in a sense, once again blaming Paul for their sin. They were the culprits here. Their version of the gospel had come from men because it was based on human effort and works. Paul's gospel came directly from Jesus and squares with the entirety of Scripture. The gospel that, that, that Paul got from Jesus is the true gospel. It's the true gospel that we read about in Scripture Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. These guys were preaching some kind of man-made concoction. They were the culprits. Their gospel had all the, the accoutrements that men like, works and earning. How do we know if our gospel is from man or from God? That's a million-dollar question, right? There's, there's plenty of gospel out there. How do we know if we have the right one? If our gospel says that salvation is by faith plus works, like in Roman Catholicism and other false religions, then we are trusting in man's gospel. And Paul says in the previous section, we are accursed. We are under the curse of God. And yet if our gospel uh, says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, totally apart from any works or effort on our end, we are trusting in God's gospel, and we are truly saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 again. That's the true gospel. They were blaming Paul twice now for things that they were doing. They were the people pleasers. They were the ones who got their, their ridiculous false gospel from other men. In fact, that false gospel of trying to earn your way has been around since the fall. They were just parroting what had always been believed that hey somehow if you just believe a little bit in god and work hard at it do as much as you can do then the scales will come out and god will weigh it and if you've done more good than bad then you're good to go that's the false religion of this world and it's been around since the beginning almost they're just parroting the false gospel that's always been around and paul preaches the true gospel let's move to his third autobiographical statement he says, guys, I was part of a religious system, and I persecuted the church. Verses 13 and 14, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, 
how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Look at that. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This was Paul's way of saying that nothing in his past unconverted life provided the source of truth he was now proclaiming. He was not in Christ, nor did he understand grace or the gospel in his previous life when he was totally intertwined in that religion. His life, he says, was in Judaism. Judaism was and still is the, the religion of pious Jews. It was around then, it's around today, it's pretty much the same. It has several sacred books according to it. There's only one sacred book, in my opinion, and that's the written Torah, that's the Old Testament. That's one of their sacred books. That's the only one that's sacred, but not to them. They also have what they call the oral Torah, the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a commentary that tells Jews how to live out the 613 commandments we find in the Old Testament. It's just basically a running commentary on how you're supposed to live your life for God. And you've got the Talmud, which basically is a combination of the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Gemara is a compilation of rabbinic discussions on the commandments of God. Jews say that the the Mishnah is divinely inspired and just as authoritative as the Torah or the Old Testament. So they don't believe in just the Bible. They've got the Old Testament. They've got their Mishnah. They've got these other things that they ascribe to and they believe are authoritative. Kind of reminds me of Roman Catholicism that has its extra books and then it's got the papacy and all these things. If you really want to trip out Ancient Judaism, that is the closest connection that we have to that today, aside from Judaism, is Roman Catholicism. It is ancient Judaism on steroids. It literally is. Roman Catholicism is not based on Christianity. It's based on Judaism, literally. I'm not lying. The, the parallels are uncanny. It's unbelievable. They've got all these writings, and here, here's the bottom line. And, and you must understand that Paul was a student of these sacred Jewish writings, right? He was a student of the Old Testament. He was a student of, of uh, the Mishnah, the Talmud. He, he was all in on these things, the Gemara, all in. He had mastered these things. But what you need to understand is that Judaism is not about grace, it's not. Now, I guarantee there's probably a few of them in our community that run some of the local synagogues, right? A, a few modern-day rabbis who would disagree with me on that and say, no, Judaism is entirely about grace. Well, let me, let me help you understand what's happened there. They've been influenced by Christianity, whether they want to recognize it or not. But Judaism is not about grace. Judaism is about law. Judaism is about obedience. Judaism is about conformity. In fact, I think that's where Islam gets some of its ideas out of ancient Judaism because it's all about submission and law. The purpose of the Old Testament, we know this, has always been to point to Jesus, right? Luke 24, 44, Jesus said it himself. The prophets, the Psalms, it all points to me. 
But through the centuries, the Jews added these other traditions and these additional writings. And, and over time, they created a massive man-centered religion. And Paul was part of it. He was strict. He was pious. He was fully sold out, fully committed to Judaism. It was his life, he says. You knew about my past life in Judaism. So Paul knew nothing about grace, nothing about the true gospel when he was in that system. Grace, things like mercy and grace, they were, they were foreign to him. And they were also threatening, weren't they? Because this is why he says that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He saw Christians and the church and the message of grace as a threat to his system of law. This is why they killed Jesus, by the way. Because to the Jews of that day, they thought he, was, he had come to tear their system down. He's contradicting our religion. And they killed him. As a devout, pious Jew in the system of Judaism, Paul was advancing, he says, in Judaism beyond many of his own age. In other words, he was the top student of his class. He was even trained by the top rabbi of that day, Gamaliel, according, he says, to the strict manner of the law. And that's that, that he says that in Acts 22, 3, but he also says here in the traditions in our text. Uh, in fact, he says, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And in that, he decides because of all that zeal and all that commitment to that religion, he decides to become kind of the ultimate expression of that, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were an elite group of religious scholars and scribes who basically policed the people on religion. They were the religion law enforcement in a sense. Uh, they were like lawmen. They, were armed. they weren't armed with pistols. Um, they were armed with the Torah. They were armed with their oral traditions, you know, their sacred writings, the commentaries on those things. And what they did was they went around and made sure that the people, the Israelites, were obedient. And they followed Jesus and put him under a microscope. Boy, did they ever. We see Jesus interacting with, with the, the Pharisees probably almost as much as he interacted with his own disciples. Because they were always there watching and listening and trying to trap him because he didn't square with all their traditions. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is, I was entrenched in this system at the deepest depths of it. You need to understand that Judaism was not something he did on the Sabbath. It is, as he said, his life. My whole life revolved around that religion. Zeal for religion, for that religion, had led him to hate Jesus and violently persecute Christians. He approved of Stephen's death, the very first Christian martyr, Acts 7.58. Paul, and his name was Saul back then, but Paul or Saul, he ravaged the church. He entered the homes of believers and dragged men and women off to prison, Acts 8.3. He breathed out threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, Acts 9, 1. 
And with the support of the Sanhedrin, he attempted to conduct a covert mission to find and incarcerate believers in Damascus. Acts 9.2. Paul understood one thing during that season of his life. He was solely committed to one thing, Judaism. And he, he tried with all of his strength and might to destroy what he thought was threatening it, the church. And what he's saying here ultimately is there's nothing in his past unconverted life that provided him with a source of truth, with the source for the truth that he was proclaiming. I didn't learn this gospel when I was in Judaism. Judaism tried to kill this gospel is what he's saying. I didn't learn this from other rabbis or from anyone else during that time in Judaism. There's nobody there that influenced me for this. I tried to kill Christians. This is what he's saying. In other words, I knew nothing about the gospel during that time. Nothing. So don't try to say that I, I picked it up along the way from some clown during that time. We knew nothing of it. In fact, we tried to come together and kill it. I've always wondered where Paul was when Jesus was executed. You ever wondered that? We know he was alive. We know he was around. We don't see him until, what, Acts 8 or 9? But I wonder where he was. I wonder if he was, he was part of the Sanhedrin. Probably part of the group there that was casting their vote to kill him. We don't know. But there was nothing in his past life that would have lent to this message that he was now preaching. We knew nothing about the gospel. Let's move to Paul's fourth autobiographical statement. He says, I was converted and called by God to preach to Gentiles. Verses 15 and 16a. He says, but when he, remember, he just got done talking about his past life and, and all the religion and trying to kill Christians and all that. But when he, but, I love that word, but, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him, that's Christ, among the Gentiles. It was during Paul's covert mission to Damascus that the Lord Jesus first appeared to him. While in route, he was blinded. The Lord descended and appeared before him, and he was blinded by divine glory. He was converted to the faith, and he was commanded to enter the city and wait for instructions, right? This is Paul's conversion story, Acts 9, 3 to 6. And he then entered Damascus, and then three days later, he was still blinded, hadn't had any food or water or anything. He was just in a daze. I know he was converted, but he was also confused because somebody had to come and help unpack things for him. But for the most part, he enters the city. Three days later, while he's praying, a disciple named Ananias, who received a vision to go to him, Ananias came to Paul and he restored his sight. He baptized him, right? True Christian baptism. He's a believer. He baptized him. He didn't baptize him and then he got saved. He was a man of faith before that, he believed, and then he was baptized. The order is correct. And then Ananias also described what the Lord had said to Ananias in a vision about Paul. You can read about this in Acts 9, 8 through 18. And from that point, Paul began to preach the gospel in the Damascus synagogues. Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. Remember when we studied this about 94 years ago? It was a long time ago when we looked at this. He began to preach. Now there is a 
a major gap between Acts 9.22 and verse 23, a period of about three years. And that gap is recorded here in Galatians chapter 1, verses 16b to 18. We'll look at it in a moment. What is Paul doing here in our text in chapter 1, verses 15 to 16a? What, what exactly is he aiming for here? Well, he's describing when the gospel first was revealed to him. Remember, he said, I didn't get it from man. I got it from God. He's describing when that happened. It was during his covert mission to Damascus. This is when God, as he says here in Galatians, called him by his grace and revealed his son to him. It happened when the Lord Jesus appeared before him in bright, blinding light. Notice the important detail in verse 15. It says, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Wow, we could have used this text in that 10-part series on the doctrines of grace, Calvinism, couldn't we have? What do you have here? You have a declaration of the sovereignty of God right here. A fat, you can't miss it declaration. Big, bold. What's he doing? He's making sure that the Galatians understand who is behind his salvation and calling as a minister to the Gentiles. God had set Paul apart before his birth and called him by sovereign grace. Of course, the Judaizers were saying the opposite, right? They were saying, well, Paul was just merely taught and taught the gospel from illegitimate men, and he was appointed to the ministry by illegitimate men. Galatian Christians, don't take this clown seriously. We are the true leaders in the church. We are the preachers. We are the teachers. Don't take him serious. And Paul was ultimately refuting them here. He is essentially saying, I was set apart by God before I was born. Sovereignty. I was called by God's grace. Sovereignty. And God revealed His Son to me, sovereignty, so that I could become His chosen instrument and preach Christ to Gentiles, non-Jews. Paul is defending himself. He's just telling his conversion. You think I got the gospel from, from men and I was appointed by men? No, 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 look at this. I was set apart before I was ever born. And then when I was born, later on, I was called by effectual grace. And I have become what I have become because of him, not because of some apostles or anyone else. That's all he's saying. Let's move to his fifth autobiographical statement. Five, I went away to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Verses 16b and 17, here's that gap. He says, I did not immediately, he's talking about after his conversion, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles or who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul tells the Galatians that he did not immediately consult with anyone after his conversion while he was in Damascus. He spoke to nobody with the exception of Ananias. And Ananias didn't appoint him as an apostle or give him the gospel. He says that he also did not go to Jerusalem to interact with the apostles. Now, you would think that a person in his position would do the opposite, right? 
It makes sense for a, a new believer and emerging preacher to connect with more experienced ministers. I mean, let me tell you, after I was converted, I started believing that God was calling me to preach and pastor. If the apostles had been in my area, the first thing I would have done was schedule an appointment. They got Taco Tuesday down at Dos Compadres. Peter, can you meet? Well, I'm too busy for you. Well, uh, James, can you meet? I'm too busy too. Well, I mean, all right, give me Judas Iscariot for crying out loud. He was already gone. I mean, think about that. It makes sense for somebody like in Paul's shoes to make these connections and, and get the kind of input that he can and maybe get some training, right? I mean, when you have a new believer who, who's now starting to preach, it's, it's not a bad idea for them to get some theological and ministerial training. Those are good things. Trust me, new Christians say crazy stuff. I, I, man, you should hear a couple of my first sermons. You would be like, I think Phil's accursed. Yeah. If you don't believe me, just think of a guy named Apollos. He was a Jew from Alexandria who was converted to Christ. He knew Scripture. He spoke accurately concerning Jesus to a degree, but he did not understand penal substitution. He didn't understand how, how Jesus took the wrath of God and suffered in our place and took upon our sins. He, he got that a little bit, but not rightly, and he didn't understand Christian baptism rightly. He goes into Ephesus to preach the gospel, and literally, there's a couple of people there, a very loving couple, a Christian couple, Priscilla and Aquila. They hear him preaching, and they go, uh-oh. And after his sermon, they took him aside and say, said, that's not entirely accurate. That's the last thing in the world a preacher wants to hear after he preaches, right? Well, I, just, I guess I'll just die. And they pull him aside, and and try to help him understand, and they unpack these doctrines for him, right? Acts 18, 24 to 26. What happened? Paulus kicked against them? Of course not. He said, I, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. He understood John's baptism. He doesn't understand Christian baptism. And it, 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 Why didn't he understand Christian baptism? Because he didn't understand penal substitution. In any case, he benefited greatly from the brief theological training that he received from this loving couple. He became a, a great help to other brothers and sisters and a, a powerful expositor, it says in Acts 18, 27 to 28. And yet we're reading about Paul's experience, which is quite different. He consulted with no one. Well, it might be a good idea for you to go meet the council. No. He received... Zero theological and ministerial training at the hands of other believers, at the hands of men. He didn't even go to Jerusalem after his conversion or when he started preaching. He didn't go there to interact with the apostles. Instead, he left Damascus and traveled to Arabia, a region that stretched east from Damascus down all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula. Arabia was originally called Nabatea. The ancient Nabataeans were descendants of Ishmael, Genesis 25, 13. They were expert stone carvers. They actually took the side of a mountain and carved out an entire city and called it Rachmu. We know it as Petra. It's still there. You can see the ancient ruins. Petra is what? Greek for rock. Where are we talking about here? We're talking about modern-day Jordan. It's still there. You can go see it, and if you want to go, let me know, and, and I'll let you pay for me. I'd love to go see this. Cash in that Dogecoin. Let's go. Now, if I cash in right now, I'd make $1.19. It was during, listen, this is the point. It was during 
Paul's time in Arabia that he received his theological and ministerial training. But guess what? There's a catch. There were no churches there. That territory had not yet been evangelized. This is early on, remember. There were, however, Arabians present at the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.11. The, the word says it. There were Arabians there and all sorts of other people from different areas and territories. But we don't know if they were actually converted among those 3,000. We don't know if they went back to their homeland, back to Nabatea, back to Arabia, and, and planted churches. We have, we have no record of that. I, I'm imagining that, that, that they didn't do that. There weren't churches there. There was, however, a... Uh, Jewish population in Arabia, which means there were synagogues, but that's besides the point. Think about it. Without other believers and churches present, how was Paul prepared for the ministry? How? How does he get trained? Since he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 12 of our text, I think it's pretty fair to assume that Jesus Christ also trained him for ministry and theologically. Amen? Well, does that mean that Jesus took on the form of man again and came down and walked through it and showed him the ropes? Of course not. This was all done by Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave Paul the gospel. Jesus trained Paul theologically. And that, that, that is the ultimate seminary. That's how he got his training from the Lord. It's amazing to think, because that, that is a, a mysterious time, friends, when he was away in Arabia. The Bible didn't say much about it, but I think that's when he was trained. As Paul went into the synagogues, right, because I said there were, there were Jews in Arabia, that means there were synagogues, and synagogues were, was where Paul loved to go in and preach. Anytime he entered a new city, town, or, 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 uh, or village, he would immediately find out if there's a synagogue, and he would go in there on the Sabbath and preach Christ crucified. This is what he did, and I believe he did this in and around and throughout Arabia during that time. And as he was preaching, the Lord was convicting him and shaping him and pruning him and, and training him theologically. There, there is really no better way to get trained than to just get out there and start doing it. And that's what Paul was doing, and the Lord was working in him and through him and transforming him and sanctifying him and turning him into, in my opinion, the greatest of all the apostles. It all came from Jesus. We actually know that Paul did preach the gospel throughout Arabia. We know this is a fact. We know that he preached the gospel while he was there. Why do we know that? Because the king of the Nabataeans, that whole territory, his name was Eratos, he sought to have Paul arrested. 2 Corinthians 11, 32 to 33. Why would he want to get him arrested? Because he went around preaching Christ crucified and stirred up the Jews. Paul did that everywhere he went. Ephesus turned into Minneapolis. It wasn't BLM, though. It was the gospel that turned people upside down. Paul left Arabia, and what did he do? He returns to Damascus, where he left previously. But after many days, the Jews plotted to kill him. One evening, some disciples took Paul and led him, or led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. That's how he made his escape. He became a picnic lunch. Acts 9, 23 to 25. After that, then Paul went to Jerusalem. 
But he was not well received because the disciples were afraid of him. Acts 9.26. Wouldn't you be afraid if a guy showed up and, hey, man, I'm a Christian now, after he killed Christians and murdered them and did all these things? I wouldn't let, just like, oh, just come on in, Fred. I'd be like, I'd have my hand on my gun. Come on in. Yeah, you start talking crazy, I'm going to pop you. No, they didn't just let him in. But that's not even the point. The point that Paul is making here is that he's making this to the Galatians. He began, this is his point, he began to discharge his calling as a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles before he went up to Jerusalem to see the apostles. Remember, the Judaizers were saying that, that Paul had not only received his version of the gospel from illegitimate men, but he also received his calling, uh, his calling to the ministry from illegitimate men, namely the apostles themselves, because the Judaizers hated them too. And he's saying, I started preaching the gospel. I was called out by God. I started preaching the gospel to Gentiles long before, long before, three years before I ever went. To Jerusalem. He's just defending his chronology, his story, and his apostleship. That's all he's doing. Sixth autobiographical statement. He says, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. That's not Bo Cephas, by the way. You know who that is? Only Daryl does because he's hecka old. Verses 18 to 21. I know who he is. He says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Who's Cephas? That's Peter. And I remained with him 15 days. Look, look at the, the description, how descriptive he is. He knows exactly how long he was there and how much time he spent with Peter. I was there. I spent 15 days with him, but I saw none of the other apostles, he says, except James, the Lord's brother. And then look at the parenthetical in verse 20. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie, exclamation point. And then he says in verse 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Paul tells the Galatians that after a period of three years, he finally went to Jerusalem. Three years after he was converted, three years after he was preaching the gospel in, in Damascus and Arabia. Then he goes, and when he arrived, he connected with Cephas or Peter, the head apostle. And he says he spent 15 days with him. What's the point? That's hardly enough time for Paul to be trained by Peter theologically and ministerially. What are you going to get in 15 days? Men go away to seminary for two to six years and still come back not knowing enough. Paul's there for 15 days. The Judaizers are saying, oh, you got trained by the apostles. He only was with them for 15 days and only one of them. And I'm sure Peter had his hands full. What could Peter possibly impart to Paul in 15 days? That's his point. And the fact is Paul was not there for training he, he was already a minister of the gospel, trained by the Lord Jesus, the greatest trainer in the world. He went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with the apostles. But he only met Peter and then James, Jesus' half-brother. James was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He's a good man. Yeah, he's the human instrument behind the letter called James. And after connecting with Peter and, and James, what did he do? He began to preach the gospel throughout the holy city, throughout Jerusalem. And he got into a dispute with the Hellenists, and they wanted to kill him. Now, obviously, it was a gospel dispute. They didn't agree with the gospel he was preaching, and he stood firm. Paul never backed down, and then they wanted to kill him. So what? The brothers learned about their scheme to kill Paul, and they took Paul and took him up to a port city called Caesarea, 
where he boarded a boat for Tarsus, which was his hometown, Acts 9, 28 to 30. And uh, this, actually, this account squares perfectly with Paul's statement at the end of verse 21 here. Caesarea was located in a ter territory the Romans called Syria, Palestina. And Tarsus was in Cilicia. What's he saying here in verse 21? After I left Jerusalem, after spending only a few days there, I went to Syria, Palestina to board a ship. And then I sailed and went to Tarsus, which is in Cilicia. Perfect account. Just pay close attention to that parenthetical, though, in verse 20. Paul declares, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. What's he doing? He's swearing an oath here. He's swearing an oath before God and before the Galatians. What is he saying? I am telling the truth about my life, about my conversion, about my calling. I received nothing from men, Judaizers, nothing. It all came from the Lord. Now we can look at his final autobiographical statement. Number seven, I was personally unknown among the churches of Judea. Verses 24 to 20, or 22 to 24. He says, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Verse 24, And they glorified God because of me. Paul's visit to Jerusalem was very short. It did not include any visiting of the churches throughout Judea. There were multiple churches planted in the, in the region of Jerusalem in Judea. Well, why didn't he go do that? Because ain't nobody got time for that. Who was trying to kill him? The Hellenists. He couldn't hang around. He had to leave. He was whisked away to Caesarea because his life was in danger. What he's saying is that the churches throughout Judea, I think what he's saying is I would have loved to visit them and mingle with those Christians, but I, couldn't, I didn't have time to. But what he's saying is, is that I never got to meet them in person. I did not during that time get to go and visit those churches and talk to people. All that those churches knew about Paul, about this independent apostle, was what they kept hearing about them. They didn't get it from his own lips. They just kept hearing the story about him. Wow, that guy used to persecute us. Now he's preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. That's as much as they knew about him. For obvious reasons, it's, uh, it had been extremely difficult for believers to accept the genuineness of Paul's conversion. I think, no, duh. I mean, he was a persecutor, and now he's a proclaimer. That's crazy. I wouldn't just let him in. But when the Lord gave such great blessing to Paul's ministry, resulting in his own persecution, Acts 9, 23 to 24, and verse 29, his fellow Christians could no longer doubt he was a specially chosen and gifted man of God. And they were glorifying God because of him. The point Paul is seeking to make here is that no one from the Judean churches met up with him either. Nobody there trained him. Nobody there gave him the gospel. Nobody there taught him theology. He didn't attend the Judean seminary. He wasn't even there long enough. These churches played no part in his conversion, calling, or training. Zero. Goose egg. They never even met Paul face to face at that time. They only knew his story. And they marveled at how the power and grace of God had transformed 
this uh, motir- uh, I, don't, I can't even pronounce the word I put in here. Mortiferous, persecutor. It, 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 just, it just means bad. They couldn't understand how God had taken this terrible persecutor and turned him into this wonderful proclaimer. They just couldn't get their minds around it, and it just left them to be mind-blown and just to, just to praise God. In verses 10 through 24, this whole text, Paul defends himself against the Judaizers, against the weak-minded Galatians, not all of them, but some of them who... Uh, he, he, he is defending himself against those, uh, the false teachers and those who are believing the false teachers by giving a chronological account, an autobiographical account that shows that he had no connection to the apostles, zero theological training or ministerial training after his conversion that came through men. Nobody took Paul under their wing and led him and guided him and did this. He literally was an independent apostle. God forged him. God called him. God sent him out. He proclaimed the true gospel. No man had any influence on him at all. His gospel came from Christ. His apostolic and ministerial callings came from Christ. His training came from Christ while he was in Arabia. And I would say it kept on going as he kept doing ministry because our training as ministers never ends. It only ends when we breathe our last breath. The apostles had literally nothing to do with these things related to Paul. In fact, they were scared of Paul. If Barnabas had not intervened, they would have never let Paul in, Acts 9.27. Paul ultimately here through this autobiography, through the first part of it at least, he proved that the Judaizers were absolute liars. But he wasn't finished with them yet. He had more to say, Lord willing, We'll look at the second part of his autobiography this coming Sunday. I just have two final thoughts for you before we pray. Just two things. I mean, the whole text stands out to me. It's an amazing narrative. But there's two things that, that really stand out to me. Because you can look at, you can just hear this whole message and say, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Great. Hooray for Paul. Well, hooray for the gospel because Paul was defending the gospel. But what can we glean? What can we draw? Well, firstly, two things. In verse 15, Paul pointed to the sovereign grace of God. If we are in Christ, it's not because we put ourselves in Christ. It's because God chose us. It's because God set us apart before we were born. And it's because God ultimately, at some point in time and space, He called us effectually through sovereign grace. Did we not just spend 10 weeks studying this? Boy, I wish I would have known about that verse. And that series is posted on our website if you want to learn more about the sovereignty of God in salvation. Paul is saying, it was, it was God who did this by His sovereign grace. No man did this for me. That's the first thing. Remember what God has done for you by His sovereign grace. Secondly, in verse 24, this one has a bit more sting. Paul said, and they glorified God because of me. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Are we living the kind of lives that lead others to glorify God because of us? Think about that. Do people say of us, wow, Lord, I can see your power and grace at work in Phil. You are truly awesome. 
That's what they were saying about the Apostle Paul in those Judean churches. Do they say, I can see your mercy and goodness at work in Brenda. You are mighty! Do they see, I can see your love and, and patience and kindness at work in Jared. You are great. How do people respond to God because of you? Do they glorify him? Do they curse him? Do they question him? What is going on there with Bill? Do our lives cause people to think of God at all? And if so, what do they think of the God we claim to love and worship? 